Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, hey, good morning, South. How's your new year going? Yeah, we're starting out well. Oh man, it's so good to see so many of you here today. Um, Just, yeah, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to join the prayer series called What to Say When You Pray. And if you have been with us over the the last week, um, last week, Pastor Alex shared with us what not to say when to pray. That's good to know, right? And um, I'm Yvonne, one of the pastors here, and I get to come in and, and continue this series today. And I'm sure you guys are like really eager to get to the words, right? What is it that we need to say when we pray? But to disappoint you, the bad news today is that we're actually not gonna get to the exact words of the scriptures because there's one more verse and one more week that we would like to to talk to you, and this verse is in the context of the prayer. So if you have your Bibles today, open up to Matthew chapter six, verse six, because right before Jesus gives us what to say when we pray, he gives us example that we call the Lord's Prayer. He says, but when you pray. Okay, our ears should perk up and say, Okay, Jesus, what are you saying? And he says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Before he gets into what he's praying, Jesus is laying a groundwork here. And he is communicating to his disciples that prayer happens alone. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on just a second. Objection is the official term. Objection? Rebuttal, yes. Because I'm old enough to remember, we did a whole act series as a community for like months. It felt like months anyway. And we saw Acts chapter one, they pray together. Acts chapter two, they pray together. There's this moment where the spirit comes. And if that sounds something you want to know more about, there's, there's loads in there. It's, it's a great story. Acts chapter four, they pray together. It's together, it's True. together. Even Jewish culture, together. And when Jesus spoke to his disciples towards the end of this same book, Matthew, he says to them, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with you. So I need your little clicky thing over there. Because... <laughs> Prayer happens together. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. So we did have that planned. And today, Alex and I want to team teach because prayer is not just alone and it's not just together. Prayer is like a two-sided coin. There are moments where we need to pray, just us and God. We need to get away and be alone with him. And there are other times where the, the coin flips over and, there, and we need to engage in prayer together. And if you are like me, sometimes I forget that this verse from Matthew 6, 6, to go into our room and pray alone and, and pray to our Father in secret is right before Jesus prays a corporate prayer. 
There's pronouns like our father in heaven, forgive us our sins, deliver us. So Jesus is slapping a a new concept in the face of, of the Jewish and followers of God, of Yahweh, saying prayer is not just loud and in the synagogue in a sacred language, but it needs to be engaged in, in both in private, alone, and together. What more do you want to add? Well, so just to make sure we're all on the same page from last week, especially for those of you that weren't here last week, we began this series by saying that Jesus in his wonderful Jesus-like way, he begins a teaching on how to pray with things that you shouldn't do. So there's this passage in Luke chapter 11. This is the context for this prayer in Luke's version. And Luke is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life. If you're new to the Bible, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. You could read a little bit of resentment in that question. Jesus was in so many ways a traditional rabbi, even though he didn't do things as many other rabbis did them. He gathered followers like they did. They would copy him like other rabbis' students would copy them. So certain rabbis would walk a certain number of steps and their students would say, I'm going to walk those number of steps on a holy day too. Now, Jesus doesn't seem too concerned about those things, but when the disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray, you could read it as Jesus, why haven't you done this already? Every other rabbi we know, he taught his followers, and and we want to learn from you. You're praying in a way that we see is compelling. We want what you have. And Jesus begins with how not to pray. And so if you're a person that would say, I'm not particularly religious, you'll probably love a couple of these things that he gives them not to do because it may strike a chord with you. You may say, I've had some questions about what I've seen in prayer. And I'm kind of glad he said these kind of things. Jesus says, don't pray at God for human attention. Don't use prayer as a way of putting your hand up and saying, hey, I'm, I'm here, aren't I wonderful? Someone sent me a message this week because they told me that they were going on a, on a solo, like a spiritual retreat. And then they sent me a message in the week that just said, I've, I've decided that a new translation of this passage should be when you're going on a silent retreat, don't tell your pastor you're going on one so you look good and impress him and stuff like that. There's, there's this concept of spiritual disciplines that sometimes, if we're honest, we can do them for human attention. And Jesus' first thing is, don't, don't do that thing. And then a second thing he says not to do in this sort of clearing some of the baggage from prayer is he says, don't pray at God to force divine intervention. Now, now let me make sure we're clear on that. He's not saying don't pray for divine intervention. So much of prayer is this wonderful way we get to come to God and say, God, we need something from you. I need something from you. This person needs something from you. But if some of us are honest, and I'm not sure all of us are very honest in prayer, much of the time, myself included, sometimes we come with a very definite idea of exactly what God is going to do. And it's very hard for us to surrender that thing. Somewhere what Jesus models for his disciples is this, an ability to come and ask his father for something But then at some point to say, Father, you have a will. I want to get into, tap into, come into agreement with what your will is. 
Jesus clears the groundwork for them. And then he'll get to these 57 words that truly are groundbreaking. He'll give them some concepts that are brand new to them. He'll tell them that they can pray Father in a way that they wouldn't have believed as Jewish people growing up. He'll give them some incredible things to say and to experience. But first he wants to make sure there's some things that they're not doing. Don't pray at God because you want human attention. And don't pray at God thinking that you can force divine intervention. What he pictures is prayer as this incredible relationship. That song pictures that perfectly. It captures that perfectly. Prayer is this moment of relationship. So as we get into this passage in Matthew, I'm going to read it, pray, and Yvonne's going to unpack some of the context of it for us. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. God, there is a lot in that. Would you speak to us? For my friends here would describe themselves as not particularly religious, struggling with how to engage with you. That could be so many of us at different points. Would you speak to us? Would you challenge those of us that need challenging? For those of us that have treated prayer as this opportunity to get attention, whether we realized before or not, would you draw us closer into a relationship with you? For those of us that are wrestling with doubt and uncertainty, would you give us a new picture of you? Maybe just open that window, clear that lens just a little bit. Amen. Here we are in Matthew 6, 6, and we're gonna land there. And I get the task of talking about what is it, Jesus, are you saying to us in, in getting us ready to hear this corporate prayer? And I think that I see what's coming out of here as three real benefits to praying alone. And maybe you struggle to pray alone, but I think that hopefully through this that you can see that there are some blessings and some real beautiful things that can come from being alone with God in prayer. The first, I think, is that I, the benefit is that we make room for God. He says, go to your room. And I think we go to our room to make room. Maybe you guys did this over the holiday break. Maybe you went into a room and you got it all ready and you prepared to have someone come and dwell with you, to reside and, and visit with you. You know, I've just done that recently with a new roommate in my house. I had to go into my room that she was gonna live in and clear it all out of the other furniture that was there and, and prepare. I painted her, her closet and I was ready to have her come and dwell with me. And so by going to a room, I think that the invitation is that we make room for God. And this God is the God of the universe, the God who holds all things together. In first service, Aaron was telling our congregation that it just feels like it's in our bones to want a relationship with God. Mm. And that praying alone, going to a place to pray alone, actually gives us that kind of space. Now, does that mean that we all need to have a prayer room? No. <laughs> I mean... Jesus obviously gave us many examples of, of praying and he didn't have to go to a prayer room. His prayers might've looked like this. His room might've looked more like this than like this. We see examples of Jesus withdrawing often 
He's going to the mountainsides to pray. He's praying in gardens. He's having overnight experiences with God in, in the room of darkness. He's getting up early and going to solitary places. And, and even while he's with his disciples, he's praying alone to his Father in heaven. So he models this idea of making room for his Father in heaven. And this idea is going to a room with a door. And if I'm gonna kind of go back in slides just for a second to give you this idea that in their society, most of their rooms would not have doors on them. They're kind of opening places. And so when Jesus says that you're supposed to go to the room that has a door, there might have only been one room with a door. Mm-hmm. It might have been the, a room in the very center of their house And that would have been used for some storage where you actually close the door and you don't want people to see that, you know? So he's saying, go find the creek. Am I not on the right side? Here we go, this slide. (laughs) Um, You can see that some of these are openings, right? And so he is specifically saying, this is so different. This kind of prayer Mm -hmm. and making room for God is so different than going to a synagogue and praying in these religious kind of prayers. This is a very intimate place and a place where you can find a place of hiding. Mm -hmm. He says in this verse that we're praying to our God who is unseen. So I think the second benefit is that when we make ourselves unseen, when we go and hide, We're communicating with a God who's unseen. And we're getting the opportunity to learn all of the unseen ways. It's as if he's saying that as we become unseen, we get to see the unseen. The fact that we go into hiding is, is just to remind ourselves that we're accessing a whole different ball game. We're playing a different game. You know, the times that I think about hiding or I think about becoming unseen, it makes me think of my brothers because they put on a whole garb of camouflage and then they go out into their room, um, into the forest, and they wanna be completely unseen even by the animal world. But this has become a spiritual discipline for them that they become unseen and they're able to come communicate with God and have special times in the early morning hours or watching the sunset and waiting for the animals to kind of come out and and bed down for the night. So by becoming unseen, they are, and of course that's in there with their own hobby, but they end up having access to a God who is unseen, who is in the secret. You know, in this passage here, it says that this is a God who's in secret and that this God will reward you in secret. This is not the only time in the whole sermon on the Mount that Jesus talks about the fact that he's in secret. He talks about secrets in this whole passage and he refers to them specifically three times. So in the context of practical religion, how do you How do you deal with God? How do you have a relationship with God? In your giving, he says, do it in secret. And the God in secret will reward you. In prayer, just do it in secret. And the God who's in secret will reward you. And he says, in your fasting, 
do it in secret. And the God who sees what's done in secret will reward you. The crazy thing is, is these disciples could go to the synagogue and they can pray all their prayers all day long. And they can also go into a room that's private and close the door behind them. And nothing is a secret to the one who's unseen. God knows it all. And so as we go into places of becoming unseen or in places of hiding, that reminds us that we're connecting to a God who we can't hold our secrets from him. And the invitation for me is to hide away in God and not to hide from God, to find a place of being unseen in a place where I'm fully accepted, fully loved. There, I can't tell him anything he doesn't know already. And the beauty is that I get to be fully me when I go to that place of being unseen. And I think Jesus even takes this one step further when he says to close the door. To close the door is then to open another door. There are certain doors in life that we can close, like physical doors, but there are other doors in life that we have no business and no authority opening. And it's those doors that we get to connect to with the God who's unseen. When we close a door, we could open spiritual doors in other people's lives. When we close the door in privacy in our alone time with God, we could open doors of healing for other people. We could open doors of of vocational doors because we are knocking on heaven's door. Later in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses that illustration to knock. He says, ask me, seek me, knock like you're knocking on a closed door and the door will be open to you because we have connection and access to the God and the King of all kings, the one who can open those spiritual doors and the doors that we don't have the the power to open on our own. So I think the power of praying alone, making space for God, connecting to a God who welcomes us with all of our secrets, he sees all of us, and we get to connect to a King of kings and knock on his door. So Alex, what's your argument for praying together? I need my clicker um, (laughs) to make a good argument. This is bringing back some horrible memories of these churches I used to go visit where they would make you sit on the stage. I can just say it just was terrible. Like they're just, everyone would watch you. I'm gonna move your door slide so everyone can see there was a door that was opening. Why pray together? Prayer alone, what a compelling case. And I, I loved that idea that you tapped into of hiding. Prayer is this place that we get to go that is an escape, and I use escape carefully. It's not escapism, but it's a removal from everything that we experience in day-to-day life. It is a safe space, a place to be with God. And yet, the tension we began with was this. So much of the language within the Bible is about what prayer looks like corporately, together, as groups of people. That passage that I just threw out at the beginning, later in Matthew, it says this, "'Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven.'" Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you truly that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather together in my name, there I am with them. 
Jesus would seem to be saying in this passage that something incredible happens when two people come together and pray. Now, am I saying that this is like limiting prayer to physical geography and things like that? I don't think Jesus was particularly obsessed with physical geography. There's moments where he prays for people from a huge distance and wonderful miracles happen. But it's hard to escape that somewhere there's some incredible joy in what happens when two people come into agreement. Perhaps on one hand, it's just the the encouragement of being heard, of someone else hearing you and agreeing with you, of hearing you articulate your prayers. But again, Jesus seems to say that there's some, some thing that's happening when we pray together. So for a second, let's just wrestle with this together thing a little bit more through some narrative. So we did an act series just a little while ago, and some of you I know struggled with the fact that we had to skip over certain passages. It's hard to get through the whole book of Acts in in 12 weeks. So we're going to go back and look at a passage that we didn't get a chance to look at. And if you're one of those note takers, you can go back and you can add Acts chapter 12 to your copious notes. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. So picture this new church, this new organization. James is one of their key leaders. James is now dead. John is another, and Peter is a third. And suddenly Peter is arrested And as you might expect, there is some sort of panic or some sort of response is maybe a better word to this turn of events. And so Luke goes on to say, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary where many were gathered together and were praying. The church faces crisis and the first thing they do is not shut themselves in a room, but the first thing they do is come together and they pray together. Now, you may make an argument about causation and correlation. Would this thing have happened anyway? Is this just a a coincidence? Well, the funny thing about prayer is someone once said, the more I pray, the more coincidences seem to happen. The problem with saying that this is just correlation, not causation, is that the author definitely believes it's causation. The author definitely believes that the church coming together and praying at this time had some effect on what happens to Peter and some effect on the narrative as a whole. The whole of this little pericope, this story, is cast in these terms. So Peter was kept in prison. That's the bad news, folks. There's a bad start to the story. But good news, reason not to get too discouraged, is is this. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. Something is happening somewhere in heaven, in other spaces, because a group of people come together and they pray together. Now, of course, most of you that have been around church for a while know at this point, we're not really arguing or debating. You've probably guessed that we're going to say that both praying alone and praying together have huge value, that they're both important. But I think my question and your question might be is, are they And do they have to be related? 
they have to be connected. Supposing you're a more introverted person, you like being alone, you saw Yvonne's picture of a nice prayer closet with just a chair and you and God, and you said, sign me up. I want that space. I don't have it in my house. I try going to the bathroom to escape everybody, and there's no escape anywhere. I would love to just be alone, just be by myself. Can't I just do the just pray alone thing regularly and often? Do I have to be in a group of people and pray together? And maybe you're more extroverted. Maybe you're someone who says, I love being around people. I find it so hard to do silence and solitude. Can I just do the together thing? Can I just come into a crowd and can I forget the alone time? I'm not too interested in gardens and the sound of his voice and all those different things. I want crowds. I want people. Do they have to be related to each other? As a first century person, maybe following Jesus in this group, couldn't you say, you know what? I actually just want to be in the crowd thing. I don't want to do the alone thing. I'm happy to come and pray for Peter when he's in trouble. I can do that corporate thing, but you won't catch me doing the alone thing. Would that not be a fair sort of way of looking at prayer? And the truth is, what I would suggest is that when you just do one, you miss out massively when you do the other. When you just especially come together just to pray with a crowd and you don't do that alone, you don't engage with God alone, I would say you're missing something. And the example I would give you to help you with this is I would love us for a second to understand music. So I brought you something very special to show you. I might ask you a question, what is the greatest album ever written? And then I would love to know from you why your answer is The Beatles by The Beatles. Here is a picture of it, and here is the real thing. Do not get too close to it. You can look, but you cannot touch. This is the most expensive mass-produced album of all time. One copy of this sold for $750,000. And you may say, how did a pastor get a salary to pay $750,000? And the answer is this, I didn't. I stole it. No, I didn't really. Um, I, this is not a $750,000 copy. They have a number on it, which is kind of what makes them special. So they put a number in order that they were made. Four million of these were sold in the first month it was released in 1968. And the first four, owned by each of the four Beatles, John, Paul, Ringo, and George, all have a number one on it. Uh, and only one of them has been sold. Ringo's copy was sold for three quarters of a million dollars. This has a one on it. The one's just in the wrong place. This is number 100,072, which still makes it fairly valuable. It's still worth, it may be $250,300. If you had a 10,000 range one, it's maybe worth $1,000, and it goes up and up and up the lower your number gets. But the truth is the album is special because of details like that, but also because it is just this fantastic piece of music that the Beatles put together towards the end of their career. If you haven't listened to it, little plug, not a spiritual thing, no implication, like no pastoral implication, but just listen to it. Imagine though, in 1968, you had decided, nah, not really into that, not, not a Beatles fan, not going to listen to that. And then there's this moment where the Beatles haven't toured for years. They just haven't played. Everything's been canceled. And then there's this moment in 1969 first time they play after this album has been released, where in their Apple headquarters in London, they climb onto the roof and they do this legendary now rooftop concert. A crowd gathers underneath to, to, to listen to them. The police turn up. They were hoping to get arrested to get more publicity for their album. But there's this moment where it, it, it goes down in legend. And imagine you as someone who said, no, 
don't want to listen to that album, not a fan, suddenly find yourself with a group of people that love the Beatles, that engage with the music, they're there singing along, enjoying this experience, and you find yourself somewhat on the fringe. The moment seems incredible, and you wish you could engage, but can you really? This is true of any concert you may have been to without knowing the music beforehand. You may have gone to a concert and said, I've never really listened to this band. I've done it. I went to the Foo Fighters in Wembley in 2008, 70-odd thousand people, and I'd listened to maybe two of their songs, three of their songs. I didn't really know much about them at all. And I remember watching these people get so into the moment. There was something happening that people were engaging with, and I felt myself stuck with this tension. I can either pretend but I'd feel like a bit of a phony. Or I can just embrace the fact that I'm not really connected to this moment at all. I wasn't really engaged. I didn't know the songs. I would suggest that when we come to corporate prayer, to prayer together, when we don't have that alone, when that isn't part of our lives, there is just a touch of us that if we're honest, we feel like we're on the fringes of something wonderful. And in that moment, we may want to get involved but it doesn't feel real in quite the same way. I've definitely been in, in different times in my life in places where, if I'm honest, my relationship with God outside of church doesn't look healthy, doesn't feel right. And coming together with people, I feel like someone on the fringes. Now, am I saying that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you can't come and engage with God in prayer as a community of people? That's not what I'm saying because let's remind ourselves Jesus will make very clear the relationship with God and the ability to pray and connect with God is only made possible because he is good. It is only made possible because of grace. It's not because you did anything or because you're good at praying. But I will say a couple of things. When your prayer life by yourself, when you don't engage with God at all, when it's not great, when you come to corporate prayer, it's very much easier to do that thing that Jesus said not to do last week. So much easier when you don't have something real in your personal life to act, to put on a mask. Jesus uses the word hypocrite. Hypocrites, hypocrite was an acting term. You had people in theaters that wore big masks to show you emotions that weren't real. And when we don't have this personal thing that Yvonne has unpacked for us, when we come together as a corporate thing to pray together, it's so much easier to pose, so much easier to pretend, so much easier not to be who we really are. And it's so much more likely that we stand on the fringes of what is happening saying, I wish now deep down I could be involved, but I don't know the songs and I don't know how to sing. Now that's not supposed to make you feel guilty it's supposed to be a gentle nudge to say, maybe, maybe there is a journey for you into this private thing, even when it's not easy. What I might say about the connection between these two, this prayer alone and prayer together, is this. Prayer alone enriches prayer together. It's not one or the other, but the one feeds into the other. So Yvonne, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you pray alone and what that looks like for you. And hopefully we'll hear, clear some groundwork and help people to do that a little bit this week. Sure. And I'm going to trust you with an incredible clicky thing. Thank you for trusting me. <laughs> yeah, as I was listening to Alex, just feeling like it's so great to have a place where we can go in and, and hide away with God. 
but that we don't have to hide from God. And that that will always inform how we come and pray together. That when we feel confident and secure in who God has made us to be and knowing who we are and who he says we are, then when we come into a community together, we get to enrich that time because we're not coming to perform or to pretend. And I know that there are many different personalities in this room today and online. I know that there are different seasons of life that you all are in. And, you know, for me, who is a single woman who has met much time alone, and I tend toward an introverted um, self, and that's just my posture more often than not, is that the hiding part and getting away and being alone with God comes very easy, and it's very convenient for me. And I know that in many different people's lives that that might not be the case, but you know, for me to get away with the Lord is, is exciting. I value that time. And, and yet, in, in my own personality, I would say I'm challenged by the consistency of it. The consistency for me, I don't like monotony. I don't like to do the same thing the same way twice. I don't like to tell you messages with the same words the same way twice. Like I want it to be new. And so some of the ways that I have accommodated, you know, my life with God is that I want to create new experiences with him. You know, I want to go for a walk in a new place with him, or I want to go to a new coffee shop and sit down and, and journal and listen to him and read his word or um, so I like to change things up. And yet I know that having consistency in my time alone always enriches the times when I get to pray together, the times when I feel more confident in who I am and I'm not just listening to my critical voice or what the enemy has to say about me. And I think if I were to have one closet, one prayer room, um, I would say that my car has become a prayer room. That, I, that I'll go into my car and I'll shut the door and I'll turn off all the music. And, and for me, going on a drive with the Lord in the mountains has been a rich way of me just being able to like tell him what's going on. And, and in order for me to just remember that it's time with God, I'll just take out my phone and turn on my voice memo. And that will remind me that I'm having this conversation with somebody else, just like I would have a conversation on you know, speakerphone with a friend, but that, that helps me remember that, wow, I'm, I'm having this time and this drive is dedicated to, to being with him. And then I get to hear his voice and, and say, oh yeah, Lord, I hear you. Yeah, that's what you're saying to me. And then that's recorded for me to listen to later. So lots of voice memos on my phone these days, but um, I know that I can speak to more of the introverted side. Alex, how is it for you to hide away with God? And so I struggle with being extroverted. So I find it so hard <laughs> because my mind is always going, uh, which is just as terrible as my imagine. It's like spending time with me all the time. It's awful. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I just love being around people so much. So what I have learned, and maybe this fits you as well, in terms of praying alone and using that word hide that Yvonne has used, this is me. I need to hide because I always want to be found. I always want to be found by something, whether that's people, whether that's technology, whether that's information. I just want to be doing 
things. And so for me, this is a bit of a learned art form. One of the behind the scenes stories here at South is in the office complex, we have these office doors with windows. And at one point, I was sat in my office trying to get some function done. And Aaron wandered in to have a conversation about something. Somebody else wandered in to have a conversation about something. And, and he could sense with his spidey senses, I was actually trying to get something done, but, but was just too easily and readily engaged with just some kind of fun conversation or discussion. And so we reached behind the door and we have these special magnetic strips that cover the windows so you don't get disturbed. It's like our unofficial do not disturb sign. I didn't know the thing existed and I'd been here for about three months at that point. I don't think I'd actually shut my door at all during that period. And he, with his gracious self, said, you know, it's okay to do this. It's okay to give yourself some space to do the thing that you need to do. But the truth is, my door is always open because I crave interruption. I crave the, the chance to engage with someone. I can go for a walk and pretend I'm looking for solitude, but really I'm just hoping to see a face I know so I can stop for a conversation for a while. That's just how I'm wired. and Maybe you're wired that way too. For me, to hide requires intention. To hide requires intention. But however you are wired, my hope, our hope for you is this, that, that one, if you don't know how to engage with God alone, that you would take some first steps into that. And two, if you've never engaged with God together with a group of people, I mean, never really engaged, and maybe just because you know personally, that isn't your thing. We'd love to push you to do that. One little thing I will add is this. I love the fact that for some of you, praying alone is just something that you love and do so often, and you do it for South. There's this wonderful story about two artists. This is Albrecht Dürer. He was an artist in Germany in the 1940s, and he and a fellow artist were struggling to make enough money to support themselves through art school and do enough practice of the art to make themselves good. The two just weren't working together, so they came up with this clever solution they decided they were going to flip a coin. And the one that won would get to go off to art college, would get to study, would get to become really, really good, while the other worked really, really hard to support them. And Albrecht won the flip, and so he went off and began to study while his friend worked as hard as he could in manual labor just to support the both of them. And then several years later, Albrecht returns, now successful, now somewhat wealthy, and can easily afford to pay for Franz, his friend, to go and be the artist he dreamed of being. And yet when he got back to France, he found that the years of manual labor, the day after day of grinding away, had destroyed Franz's artistic hands. He now no longer had the capacity to be the artist that he had longed to be. And one night when Albrecht walked into the room, he saw Franz bowed in prayer, his hands together as he had every night, pouring out his soul to God, his loss, but also his joy in what he'd been able to do for his friend. It's this wonderful picture of how the two lives mesh together. One of them becomes rich and successful, and yet his most famous painting is the one that he did of his friend's hands. Mm. This friend who had given everything for him, who, this friend who had sacrificed for him, this friend who had given up his dream for him. It's a picture of one who becomes famous, extrovert, public, known, and one who is introvert behind the scenes. And yet the story isn't possible without both of them. There's some of you in this room and some of you that I know are watching online because you do every week who your time attending this community in person 
it might be over. Whether because of COVID or because of age or all those different reasons, you stay at home and you pray and you pray for this community and you love this community. And what I would love to say that what you do is valuable, but also that it is valued. It's valued by me, it's valued by our staff, by our elders, by the people in this community, that there is something, there is some life to this community that you give. And you may be in this room and believe you don't have any particular talents or you don't like to be in public or do things in public. And and I would question whether your belief that you don't have gifts is really as true as you might think it is. And yet your call is to pray and you do and it's valued and it's important. There is this beautiful symmetry between prayer alone and prayer together. We all need some of both, but it might be that you get pulled in one particular way and there's some element of those that you love very particularly. Whatever and however you are engaging with prayer, maybe there's a nudge to do something different, but we're so thankful for those of you that pray for us regularly and often here at South. You, you make a difference. And it is valued. So as we help people to move on into these moments where we're going to start to talk about the words next week that Jesus actually gives us to use and unpack some of the details, what are we asking people to do? Last week, we asked them to say here. This this week, week? we'll ask you to hide. What does that look like? What happens now? We get to hide away with God, remember? And and just like I said, we're not hiding from God. He Uh knows everything. So we get to hide with him. And the, and the benefit and what we've wanted to communicate today is that that prayer, the hiding that each of us does with the Lord, then enriches our time when we come together. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a prayer gathering, prayer and worship gathering coming up on the first Monday of February at 6.30 right here in this room. And so we would invite you to come back and pray together. And so what would you say, I'm going to go off script a little bit here and ask you a question. If you were someone who said, if I'm honest, I just don't do this prayer thing. I don't do it alone. I come here, but for the most part, I'm just, I don't really know what I'm doing. What's one little thing that you would push them to try over the next couple of weeks that might enable them to step into that word and engage in prayer? To hide. Yeah. I mean, I think the word that Alex used last week of here, here I am, Lord. Mm. And this is what's happening in my life. And this is how I feel about it. And becoming honest with him, because he already knows. Um, but we get to, to sit with him. And you could even ask the Lord, like, this is, how I, this is where I'm at. Do you have anything to say? Because a part of, of us hiding away in the, the Lord is, I think the times, at least in my own life, where I've gone away with God and then I've had an agenda and I've said, okay, I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to journal this, and I'm going to write out my prayer, or whatever, and, and I don't spend time becoming honest, or I don't spend time listening to him, then really, I'm just hiding mm. from the God who knows it all. In a bad way. So it seems like you right. can hide in a good way from exactly. everything that's going on, <laughs> but there's also a temptation in each of us to hide. And that's one of the wonderful things I would just remind every one of you of. I spoke to someone last week as we talked about here and this invitation. And he said to me, you know, I suddenly had this moment where I realized I felt constantly misheard in almost every conversation. 
I try to articulate how I felt and I just don't do it well and people constantly get me wrong and all of those different things. And he said, I suddenly had this moment where I realized God never does that with me. Mm. He understands me with all of my struggles, with all of my things going on, all of the ways I see myself. The joy is that you are invited to come to this God who knows you and loves you. And, and here's maybe the most important one, also likes you, likes who you are as a person. Like, might not like some of the stuff you do, but your personality, he gets it and he understands it. And you are welcomed into that relationship simply because Jesus loved you enough to live your life, to give his life for you and to be raised to life again. So you are invited in. Is how it finished. I'm going to yeah. get out of the way. I'm going to take the table and leave you to Excellent. do this part. Well, I'm actually going to also invite Aaron to come on up, and he's actually going to lead us through a time where you're going to be able to sit for a second and think about what is it that I feel prompted to do? Where could I hide? And as we do that, and as he gets ready, I just want to pray over you and and pray that the Lord would teach you what it looks like to hide. Lord God. We thank you that you are our heavenly father who knows all things. And Lord, it is our desire um, to be a church who prays um, both alone and together. And so Lord, I pray that you would prompt our hearts in any way that you might be inviting us to hide away in you. We're in a place where we can be honest with you, where we can listen to you, and where we could strengthen our relationship with you. Lord, we just ask that you would teach us as we faithfully go to those spaces this week and, and in the weeks to come. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.